is this morning. Ephesians chapter 1 is where we're going to start. Well, we've been in Philippians for a couple weeks. We've been able to study together in the book of Philippians for uh, three weeks now. This will be um, a, a great time just being able to hang out in this book, study its truths. We started off by talking about the reasons why we wanted to be here in this book, in the book of Philippians. Paul loves this church. It's a beautiful picture of maturity, of growth in godliness. This is a book all about unity and joy, and Paul is encouraging this church to be unified, to be filled with joy. This book roots practical exhortation in incredibly deep doctrine, and so it's a beautiful picture of having to know deep things about God and then growing in grace in practical areas based on the knowledge that we have uh, revealed to us in God's Word. And lastly, this book points us to Christ. We want to see Jesus Christ. We want to see Him on full display. We talked about Acts chapter 16, the way that this church grew through the proclamation of the gospel by God opening the eyes of the people in Philippi. Who are the three people that started uh, the church in Philippi? First, the fashionista, Lydia. Second, doesn't have a name. She's the slave girl. Third, doesn't have a name. He is the jailer. And God starts with such a crazy bunch of people, uh, a church that grows to maturity in just under 10 years. It's an amazing picture of the gospel taking root and glorifying the name of the Lord. Last week, we looked at three responses to seeing God at work and the people around you. You respond with thanksgiving when you see God working in the lives of those around you. You respond with confidence. I am sure of this, that he who began the good work in you will be faithful to complete it, to bring it to the day of perfection, um, that beautiful day when we stand gloriously complete in Christ, and then affection for those around us. That was the beginning of Paul's Uh, letter just talking about how he loves the church in Philippi, how they are an amazing blessing to him, and how whenever he prays, he thinks of them. And in all of his remembrance of them, he makes mention of them with joy in his prayers. What we're going to look at this morning is his actual prayer for them. He's going to explicitly say that, this I pray. He's kind of been saying, hey, whenever I pray for you, these are the things that come up, but this is what I'm praying specifically for you today. We see so many prayers that Paul prays that he writes and records for us, and I love them. And that's why I wanted to start out in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 18, get a little sample of the prayers of Paul. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 18, he prays, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. And what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe? These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion in every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. He prays that. For the church in Ephesus, I pray that your eyes would be open, your spiritual understanding would grow so you would see Christ. Turn to Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14. Paul says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. And this is what he's praying, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in the inner man, 
so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. What a prayer. Filled up to all the fullness of God. Wherever you might be lacking that God would grow your understanding and fill you to the fullness of him. If you turn over to Colossians, Turn over to Colossians chapter 1, another prayer from Paul. Colossians chapter 1, verse 9. For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, have not ceased to pray for you. And this is our prayer. We ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience, joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints of light. Uh, When was the last time you prayed a prayer like that? What a prayer that Paul makes a petition on behalf of the church in Colossae. What you find yourself praying for is really a great measure of your spiritual maturity, your growth, your understanding, and your affections. If you turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1, we will see Paul's heart revealed through his prayer. And this prayer specifically, if there's anybody that would be praying, like we talked about last week, if there's anybody that would be praying, God, please give me this. Please help me here. Please grant me this. It would be the Apostle Paul praying, God, please let me go from jail. Let me go free. I want to minister the gospel. Please help me. But the first thing that we find him praying for is not himself, not his needs, not the things that he might desire for himself. He's praying for others. What a beautiful picture of maturity. He's praying for those around him. And specifically, he's praying for the church in Philippi to grow in Christ, to grow in maturity to grow up to a a knowledge of Christ that would be a full stature of maturity. He says in verse 9, Philippians chapter 1, verse 9, and this I pray. Like I said, he's been talking. I've been praying for you in in, in different ways and different means, and I'm praying different things for you whenever I'm thinking of you, whenever I'm praying for you. But now this is what my specific request before God is for you. What is it? This I pray that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. I want us to look this morning at four specific things that Paul is praying for for the church in Philippi. Four specific aspects, four prayer requests, four things that Paul is praying for in these short verses. And under, under the, the, the heading, I guess, that flies the banner over these verses is that he's praying for growth in godliness, for maturity. Remember, we talked about that at the very beginning of studying this book. Though I say a lot to Chelsea, oh, I hope that you don't grow up. Please stop growing. You're already growing too quickly. The reality is if she didn't grow, if three years down the road she looked the same or maybe was reverting backwards, that wouldn't be cute anymore. There would be something that would be wrong. There would be something that we would need to check out. 
And so too, with our church, with this church in Philippi, with Christ Bible Church, with all of the churches that proclaim the gospel and live on the word of God, we need to be growing, ever growing, ever maturing in Christ. So all of these prayers, these four specific requests that Paul makes are for growth in godliness, for growth in Christ. Let's look at the first one. The first specific prayer request that Paul makes for this church is that they would live lives full of love. That they would live lives full of love. Verse 9, this I pray that your love may abound still more and more. That your love, agape, this is unconditional love. This is love that you choose to pour out onto others. It's on the basis of your intention, on the basis of your will. It's not on the basis of emotions. It's not emotionless. Emotions follow. But this is the kind of covenant-keeping love that God has given to us through Christ. This is agape love. This is unconditional, unbounded, not based on chance or circumstances or externals. Notice what Paul says. He doesn't say, I hope that you get it. I hope that you receive it. He says, I hope that it continues to abound more and more. Meaning what? They already have it. You've already been given that kind of love for each other. You've already been given that kind of love because everybody who receives Christ has the seed of this kind of love. But notice he prays that it would not stop. It would not be stunted in its growth. It would continue to abound more and more. Notice Paul does not say, for such and such. I hope and pray that your love may abound still more and more for all the saints, for those who are unchurched, for those who don't know Christ. He doesn't give this love an object. You see that? He doesn't give it an object. It's open-ended. Why does he do that? Is there an object in mind? I, I think that the object in mind would more than likely be God and people, if we can put it into two broad categories. I pray that your love for God would grow and your love for people, a spillover of your love for God, would grow and abound still more and more. I want it to be overflowing. That word abound is so rich in love. You are so rich in love that it has nowhere, you can't contain it. It has nowhere to stay and to sit. It's overflowing, abounding, overflowing. And Paul says, I pray that your love would do that. Your agape love would abound and overflow and pour out of you because you cannot contain it. How do you grow this kind of love? As Paul is praying for it, I I think, well, I want that too. (laughs) That's a good thing to have this kind of love for one another and for our great God. So how do we grow this love? The first way that we grow this love is through praying. We have to pray because this is not a natural love. This is a supernatural love. The world knows love in a natural sense. If you do something nice to me, I'll do something nice to you and love you. If you love me, I'll love you back. This isn't that kind of love. This is the kind of love that Jesus gives the command to us. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Who does that? That's supernatural love. So we need to be praying if we are going to grow in this kind of agape love. We need to be praying for it. We need to immerse ourselves, secondly, in the scriptures. We need to immerse ourselves in the scriptures. If love for God comes from this book to be able to be infused with affection for the Lord, then we need to be here. If Paul is praying, I want your love to grow for God and for others, then we need to be seeking the Lord to see him, to know why he is lovely. And then we grow in our love for him. 
We need to know the commands that he has given to us to live out to others and to love them. Paul says, I want your love to abound more and more. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. You know this is the love chapter. A lot of couples, when they are married, have this text read at their wedding, which, by the way, we can perform one because we're all ready for it right here. So anybody want to get hitched right here? It's ready to go. 1 Corinthians 13, you know that Paul speaks of hyperbole, and I could give my body to be burned, but if I don't do it with love, it, it profits me nothing. I have nothing. But if you go down to 13, verse 13 of chapter 13, the, the conclusion of everything, and you know this verse, now faith, hope, love, abide in these three, but the greatest of these is what? Love. Now, I, I have to ask myself, why is that the greatest? Why is that the greatest? I, personally, if I were to put the order on here, I'd say the greatest is faith. You've got to believe in Jesus Christ. And if you believe in him, then probably we'll have some love on top of that, and then maybe hope grown out of that because we're looking towards the future. But the greatest is faith. Why is the greatest love? Whenever I would put God's word in a different order, that's when I know I'm wrong, okay? So we know this is an order for a reason. It's in this order for a reason. Why? Go back up to verse 4. Paul tells us why. Love is patient. Love is kind. It's not jealous. It does not brag. It's not arrogant. It doesn't act unbecomingly. It doesn't seek its own. It's not provoked. It doesn't take into account a wrong suffered. It doesn't rejoice in unrighteousness, but it rejoices with the truth. And then here's the key. Love bears all things. Love believes all things. Same word there in verse 13. Love faiths all things, if you will. Love believes all things. Love hopes all things. So if you have love, you will have faith. If you have love, you'll have hope. If you only have hope, you won't have love and faith. If you only have faith, you won't have love and hope. But if you have love as your foundation, you have faith. If you have love, Christ-centered, God-exalting love, you will have hope. You will have faith. You will have hope. If you do not have love, Paul says, you become a useless, clanging symbol, a noisy gong. You're useless. You're useless. It profits you nothing to have somebody hold a gun to your head and say, do you believe in Jesus Christ? If you say, yes, I'm going to shoot you right now, we think, oh, that's glorious. I say, yes, I have a witness for the Lord. I, I am able to be a witness and a testimony to those around me. This is great. This is glorious. And Paul says, if you do not have love for Christ and for others in that act, it profits you nothing. You think, man, this is a glorious thing. No. I, if I give my body to be burned, but I don't have love, then my actions matter for nothing. That's why Paul says, I pray that your love may abound still more and more. You already have it, praise the Lord, and I pray that it would continue to abound. But he doesn't end there. He doesn't just say, I want you to love each other. Can't we all just love each other? Can't we all just get along? Let's love each other. He doesn't end there. He prays that their love would abound, back in Philippians chapter 1, verse 9, in real knowledge and all discernment. He prays that their love may abound more and more in real knowledge and all discernment. True love is always connected to real knowledge and true, all-encompassing all discernment. 
knowledge, real knowledge. This is being able to have a spiritual understanding, comprehending the things of God's word, knowledge. There are often two different camps of people. There's the camp of people that, oh man, they know so much about scripture, but they don't really live it out. They don't really have love for people. Then there's the camp that they don't really have the greatest doctrine, but boy, do they love people. You've met those two groups of people? This verse, what I love about this verse is it says both groups are wrong. Both groups are wrong. If you have knowledge without practically living it out, that's what the word discernment means, then you're wrong. If you have practical living right and you have it down, but you don't have it in accordance to knowledge, you're wrong. That's why he prays, I pray that the love that you have for God and for others may abound still more and more coupled to these two things, real love that's in real knowledge and in real discernment. Being able to discern, what should I be living for? How should I appropriate the knowledge that I have been given into my life, into daily living? How do I live this out? So what? It's the application of every text that is discernment grown out of God's word, out of a knowledge of his word, and lived out practically. Those two dangers are so prevalent because we just tend to swing the pendulum back and forth. I just want to be knowledgeable of the scriptures, but we don't live it out. That's wrong. Oh, I just want to live out love, and I just want to love everybody. If it's not in accordance to knowledge, it's not going to be profitable. So Paul prays first that this church would live lives full of love in accordance with God's word, lived out practically in discernment to others. Live lives full of love. Secondly, he prays that they would live lives full of wisdom, not only love, but also wisdom. Live lives full of wisdom. This is in verse 10. He wants them to have love in order that they may approve the things that are excellent. In order to approve the things that are excellent. He wants love, but not just by itself and not just alone. It needs to be coupled with real knowledge and all discernment, but then it doesn't just stop there. There's a reason why Paul wants them to have this kind of love, and it's because with this kind of love for God and for others, the church in Philippi will be able to approve the things that are excellent. What does that mean? What does it mean to approve the things that are excellent? Approve, it's a word that refers to testing the weightiness of something, seeing if something is true or false, if it's genuine or if it's counterfeit. They would use this word in, in the money markets to talk about, is this genuine true gold or is this fake fool's gold? What kind of metal is this? Is this precious or is this false? So too, we need to be testing and weighing certain things in order to approve, the test and weighing the things that are excellent. What does that mean? What does it mean, the things that are excellent? Lovely things, happy things, cute things? What does it mean, excellent? The word here for excellent just simply means worthy, um, purposeful, profitable. If you live for these things, you will not be wasting your life. If you do not live for what is excellent, you will be wasting your life. So Paul says, I want you to have love, and I want it to grow and abound and overflow, and that love for Christ will be in real knowledge, and that love for others will have all discernment in it, and I want you to have that kind of love because if you have that kind of love, you will be able to live for that which matters. If you don't have that kind of love, you cannot live for what matters. You'll be living for frivolous things. You'll be living for the things that will just burn up as you pass from here into eternity and stand before the judgment seat of Christ. You'll be holding things that will just fade away. Paul says, live for that which matters. That's why I would say he's praying that they would live lives that are full of wisdom. 
Don't just wake up in the day and, and, and figure out, okay, what do I want to do today? And just haphazardly make that decision. Live for that which matters. Test the choices that you're going to make and purpose that you will only live for the best. Some of us are, are trying to determine whether we're going to live for what's bad or what's good, sin or righteousness. Lord willing, as we grow in Christ, we stop necessarily making those sinful choices, and now we're looking at what's good, better, and best, but we still have a choice to make. We still have a choice to make. Do we live for this, which is good, but is this a better use of my time? Do I live for what is best? Turn to Romans chapter 12. Paul uses this word in Romans. You know this passage. Romans chapter 12, verse 1, therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may, here's our word, prove or approve or test, weigh out what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. So you say, okay, I want to approve the things that are excellent. I want to approve the things that I should be living for. How do I do that? How do we practically do that? I think Paul would point us back to Romans chapter 12, verse 2, and say the way that you start living for Christ and start living in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called and living in, a, in such a way that you're not wasting your life is this right here. Stop being conformed to the world. Stop allowing, it's literally the words here, stop allowing the world to push you into its mold. But instead, let the word of God push you into its mold. And then you'll be able to approve the things that you should be doing with your life. People ask constantly, how do I know the will of God? As if it's like Indiana Jones and the lost will of God. How do you know? You stay in here. And when you stay in this book, and you grow in love for Christ, and you grow in love for people, and your love abounds more and more, then you'll be able to test. Because you are not being conformed to this world, but you're being pushed into the mold of God's word. We are tempted as we're weighing out the things in life. How should we live our life? What choices should we make? What decisions should we pursue? We're tempted to follow after counterfeit. Well, this isn't true gold, but it's close enough and it's really pretty and shiny. I'll follow that. What are some of the biggest counterfeits that we tend to live for? Obviously, our own sinful choices, our idols in our hearts, we say, okay, I'm going to live for that instead of living for Christ, approving the things that are excellent and living in excellency. We also tend, uh, one of the biggest counterfeit metals that we tend to live after and live for is the temporal or the trivial, the, the tyranny of the urgent. I just got to do this. I got to do this now. If your mind is being transformed by the word of God, you'll be able to discern, do I really? Can I, can I wait? Can I pursue something better? Is there something better to be doing with my time? Sometimes our counterfeits are flat-out fine things, good things, acceptable things. That's why the author of Hebrews says that we need to throw aside all the sin that's tripping us up, bad things, and every encumbrance, every good thing that trips us up or slows us down. And we need to run. Sometimes just flat-out busyness our busyness is a counterfeit weight that we start to go, well, this, this feels right. I'll go after this instead of saying, no, I need to approve what is excellent and live for that. 
So Paul prays, God, grant them to live lives that are full of love. Grant them to live lives full of wisdom, skillful living. Thirdly, grant them to live lives filled with integrity. Back in Philippians chapter 1, he says, So that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. So I want you to have love, but the love isn't an end of itself. It is in order that you would be able to approve how you should live your life. But that's not an end in of itself as well. You want to be able to know how to live your life so that you will not live in a hypocritical way. You will not live in a way that is um, crooked, but instead it would be blameless. So Paul says, I pray that you would live lives full of love. Secondly, live lives full of wisdom. And third, live lives full of integrity, full of integrity. Verse 10, Paul says, in order to be sincere, I pray these things as they're stacking up on each other so that you may be able to prove the things that are excellent in order to be sincere. That word sincere, it comes from a, two words, sin um, without or, and Sarah, which is wax, without wax. Um, back, back then, you would have uh, pottery. You'd make pottery. I always have the image of you know, a, a first-time amateur trying to you know, spin the pottery wheel, and it's going around and around, and there's just this big glob of brown, and you can't figure out what you're making of it, and then all of a sudden, it, it takes shape, but it's still just this huge, I mean, the walls of the, the jar are this thick. Uh, pottery back then, if it's, if it's cheap pottery, it's just thick you could throw it against the wall and it just bounces right off. That's the kind of pottery that was cheap. That's the kind of pottery that, you know, is at the 99 cent store. That's not good pottery. Good pottery is fine. It's very thin. And when you would make very thin, fine pottery and you would put it and uh, test it in the fire and, and harden it with the flames, a lot of times, because it was so fine, it would start to crack. Now, if you were an honest uh, potter, you would take the cracked pottery and go, whoops, lost one, and throw it away. But crooked, perverse potters would take that cracked, fine, beautiful, expensive piece of pottery, and they would take wax that would look like the color of the pot, of the jar, and they would fill in those cracks with wax. So it would be virtually indistinguishable whether it had truly been cracked in the fire or whether it was genuinely beautiful without any cracks at all. And so if you were a good business owner and you owned a, a, a no hypo, hypocrisy, a beautiful, full of integrity pottery store, the placard hanging in your window would say, Sin Sarah, without wax. We're not going to use wax and cheat you of your money. It's really a broken pot, but we're just going to put wax in it and lie to you. No, we're going to be sincere. We're going to be sincere. Paul prays, oh, would you have a sincerity in your heart? I want you to have love that abounds and overflows, and because of that love abounding and overflowing, you will be able to approve what you should be living for. And when you are approving what you should be living for, then you will be able to be sincere, full of integrity, without hypocrisy. The best way to check and see whether a pot had cracks would be to take it, lift it up, and hold it up to the sun and just be able to see through. If you look at it with the naked eye, just in the shadows, the, the wax would 
fill in the cracks perfectly and you wouldn't be able to tell, but you hold it up to the sun and you can see there's some cracks here. So too, we need to take our souls that are cracked and, and full of places that need to be filled in and instead of filling them in with wax, we need to hold that up and shine it uh, right in front of the sun, shining on it to be able to see, okay, is there any place in me that needs fixing, any place in me that needs to grow? If you're like me, I tend to test whether or not I have cracks in my pot when it's really cloudy outside. Oh, it looks good. All right. Instead of staring at my life with the blazing holiness of God behind it and seeing, oh, I fall so short. What do we most often use to conceal the cracks in our life? I would submit to you, number one, we lie. Oh, no, I'm doing really well. That's not a struggle for me. Number two, we don't um, avail ourselves to accountability and fellowship. I'll go to a small group once a month. They won't really get to know me, but they'll think that they know me, and so they'll think I'm not too bad. We normally test ourselves with the light of others instead of the spotlight of God's holiness and seeing, man, I fall short. It's like we take a match and just strike the match and hold up. Oh, I'm looking pretty good. Don't compare yourselves with others. You'll just be striking a match behind your jar that's cracked and see, oh, I'm doing okay compared to you. That's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, 7, we have treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. Don't conceal the cracks with wax and lie. Live lives that are sincere, full of integrity. Romans 12, verse 9, love must be genuine or sincere. So Paul prays that they would be full of integrity, sincere, and he also prays that they would be blameless. You know that word from other translations, stumbling blocks. They would not be a stumbling block and not stumble themselves. He wants them to be blameless, not stumbling into sin, not tripping or falling, and not making others trip or fall. This word is used in Matthew 18, verses 8 through 9, when Jesus says, if your hand causes you to stumble, what do you do with it? Cut it off. Now, we know, obviously, that that's uh, hyperbole. That's an exaggeration for a point because it wouldn't even work. If your eye causes you to stumble because you're lusting after something, pluck it out and throw it far from you. Are you going to be sinless? No, you have another eye. <laughs> and even if you pluck that one out too, you still have your mind. So obviously it's hyperbole. But the point is you need to deal radically with your sin. Any stumbling block that might come into your life, you need to deal radically with it so that you are sincere, full of integrity, blameless. And he puts this all with the backdrop of the day that Christ returns, until the day of Christ. Until the day of Christ. Turn to Psalm 119. I want you to see two passages. I always ask myself, well, how is this possible? How do I live this out? Two passages that will enable us to see how we live out being sincere and blameless, not stumbling over our sin, not stumbling in unrighteousness. Psalm 119, verse 165. Those who love your law have great peace, and nothing causes them to stumble. You ask, okay, how do I live blamelessly before God? How do I do that? 
This passage says you need to love the word. If you love the word, you will have great peace. And if you love the word, you will not stumble. Nothing will be able to make you stumble if you love this law. Which again, that's why Paul prays. I pray your love may abound for Christ, for his word, for other people, for the church. I pray that your love would continue to grow. Because as it grows, the stumblings diminish. And then turn over to 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. So how do, we, how do we live lives that are blameless, that are full of integrity? How do we do that? 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be, We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. And everyone who has that hope that we will see him and not be ashamed and see him in all of his glory and be welcomed by him into heaven, everyone who has that kind of hope purifies himself just as he is pure. So love the word, dive into the word, love the law of God, love the scriptures, and fix your eyes on the last day when he will come. Fix your eyes on the last day when he will come and you will purify yourself. You will walk blamelessly before the Lord. Well, Paul writes, I pray that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge in all discernment so that you may approve the things which are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless. He prays that they would live lives full of love, live lives full of wisdom, live lives full of integrity, and fourth and finally, that they would live lives full of fruit, that they would live lives full of fruit. Paul writes in Philippians 1 verse 11, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness. Family Bible Hour, we talked about active versus passive voice. This is passive voice. This is you are filled. You don't do anything to be filled. You are just sitting there and God fills you because you have been filled by another. You've been filled by God with the fruit of righteousness, or you could literally say with with the fruit, which is righteousness itself. Having been filled, God is the one who is going to fill us with that righteousness through his son, through the grace that he gives In view of that last day at the end of verse 10, blameless until the day of Christ, verse 11 really has our hope fixed on that last day when we will be filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ. It's not necessarily the present moment that that you are uh, filled now and filled to perfection now. It's that last day when we will be filled in fullness of righteousness. But that doesn't stop us from coming back to today and saying, how are we doing on being gardeners on receiving that fruit and doing well in receiving it. John 15, you know it well, abide in me and I in you. Whoever abides in me, he will bear much fruit and my father will prune him and take away that which isn't bearing fruit so he can bear more fruit. So abide in me for apart from me, you can do nothing. If we're looking to the last day when we will stand before God completely blameless, glorified in his presence, let's work backwards to today and how are we doing? How are we doing? You see, the trick here is to rely on the gospel and not on our own good works, having been filled with the alien righteousness of another. 
It's the alien righteousness of another. It's not our doing. And the moment that we try to stand before God in our own doing is the moment we cancel any grace that he would have to give to us. The moment we say, I can do it on my own is the moment that we say, I don't need you. It's as if we're all little children trying to please our daddy. We've been outside playing in the dirt and the mud. We're all gross, nasty, need to be cleaned off. But we're not too good at cleaning ourselves yet, but we still want to be pleasing to daddy. So what we want to do is we want to run inside the house and we want to pretend like the dirt and the mud isn't there. So we run in. Daddy said, I need to practice the piano an hour a day. So I sit down, start playing. Oh, I'm tracking in mud, but no, I want to please daddy. I'm going to forget about the mud today. I go up, I clean my room, I make my bed, I take out the trash, and then I go up to dad and I say, daddy, aren't you pleased? That's really nice that you made that attempt, that you made that effort, but look at all of the mud, all of the sin that just tracked in with you. If you want to please me, you need to stop at the front door and say, I can't cleanse myself. I can't clean myself. I need a bath. Then and only then is there a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and all who would be plunged into that flood lose all their guilty stains. Then we can go and live lives of righteousness, not because we earn the goodness that we are living out, but because God's grace has graciously taken our wicked sinful life, nailed it to the cross, taken Christ's perfect life and put it in our account having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ. Live lives of love, full of love. Live lives full of wisdom. Live lives full of integrity. And live lives full of fruit. The only way that we can do that is through Jesus Christ. I just want to plead with all of us to remember the gospel. Are you frustrated in your attempts to do good works before God, feeling like you can never be enough? Would you admit today that maybe this morning you're like the little child running around trying to do good things, but just filled with mud and filthiness? You need the righteousness of another. Maybe you have been lying. Maybe you have been hypocritical. Maybe you are not sin Sarah without wax. Maybe you hold the pot of your soul close to your chest and don't let anybody see. Would you let go? Because the bottom line is God sees anyway. You can hide as much as you want from man, but you will never hide yourself from God. Would you join a small group? Would you dive into accountability? Would you disciple others and be discipled so that your, the pot of your soul would be on full display for all to see? Would you deal radically with your sin so that if anything causes you to stumble, you would cut off your hand, cut off your foot, pluck out your eye. You would deal radically with your sin. And will you live lives that are filled with love, that teach you the excellent way to live, that teach you the worthy way to live? Will you live a life that is filled with love? What kind of love are we supposed to have? Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 through 2 
You are supposed to love the exact same way that Christ loved you and gave himself up for you. Just the same way that Paul prays, I love you with the affection of Christ Jesus. He's a model. He is an example to us and says, this is the way you're supposed to live with love. Same love that Jesus has for me, I have for you. So let's go back to the gospel. Let's stop at the gospel. Let's stay at the gospel. And when we stay at the gospel, we will be overflowing with love because that's the way that Christ loved us. And we will love the way that he has loved us. And as we love, we will abound in wisdom. We will live lives filled with wisdom, knowing how to test and weigh every decision, every thought, and living for that which matters most. As we live lives of wisdom, then we will live lives without hypocrisy, full of integrity, and we will live lives full of fruit only because of Christ and his goodness towards us. So let's thank the Lord now for the cross. Let's thank the Lord now for the fruit that he has given to us. Let's thank him for doing that work through Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the cross. God, I pray if there are any here today that do not know that grace, that do not know that love, God, that they would, even as we're singing this song, they would see their need for a Savior and see the fact that you crushed your Son in their place so that though they were condemned to die for their sins, they could walk away free, having turned from their sins and having the full righteousness of the life of Jesus Christ placed into their account. God, I praise you for your grace and your love, and I pray that you would encourage us, that you would encourage us even now with the gospel that the gospel would be everything to us and we would live in that power and never walk away from the blood-soaked soil of Calvary. We pray it in the name of Christ. Amen.